Hey, welcome back to the pod crashed. This week, we're telling the story of the Munich air disaster. Thanks for listening. It's great. It's great. That's They're, good. Uh, yeah. So you actually know for once what story we're doing today. Yeah. Um, and because I did tell you ahead of time. Um, and uh, we're doing, today we're doing the Munich air disaster, sometimes what it's called. Um, it's BEA 609, but it's the Manchester United crash. Yeah. Um, and I know that, I feel like I should say this right off the bat. I, friends, dearest darling friends, I don't know anything about soccer. <laughs> I just, I don't know anything about it. So if I get something wrong on the soccer side of this, apologies in advance. <laughs> Um, you know some stuff about soccer, right? Yeah, yeah, some yeah. stuff. My brother and my husband, Ty, you know Ty, and my brother, obviously. Uh, yeah. Both really, really big soccer fans, so. Yeah. Um, and Tyler, your brother, yeah. actually helped me a little bit with this. So oh, thank cool. you, because Tyler, dearest darling Tyler, is a Manchester United fan. So. He is, yeah, he's a huge fan. Yeah. That's so exciting. So thank you for that, Tyler. Yeah. <laughs> um, the... And I am gonna call it soccer, not to like whatever, yeah. but this it's it's this, we're we're Americans, guys. I don't Yeah, this this podcast is not actually in English. It's in American English. <laughs> yes. And soccer is what it's called. <laughs> so it's fine. It's fine that you call it football. I don't mind and I'm okay with it, but here we are. Here we are. So so we're going back to nineteen fifty eight. And 1958, we're in Europe, we're in post-World War II Europe. There's um, a lot, I, I, it's very, it's a time that's honestly pretty hard for me to imagine. There's something that I, the first time that I had the pleasure of visiting Europe, something that really stood out to me is how firmly, like uh, how different the conception of World War II was I guess oh, I, it's wow, hard yeah. to describe but it just seemed like so firmly post-World War II in a way that the U.S. isn't like that's World War II in the U.S. is like a very interesting historical topic and mm -hmm. in Europe I felt it was like much more fresh and I guess that in a way that I can't quite lay my finger on and I guess that makes sense because it happened in Europe and it's it's everybody's yeah you know, it's your city that was destroyed. It, it's your, you know, the Cold War obviously affected the U.S. and had a huge psychological impact, but uh, it's very different from the way it would be yeah, in so different. Europe. And uh, so we're back in 1958, and uh, we are traveling with the Manchester United uh, football team. There you go, guys. That one's for you. <laughs> and uh, this is kind of like a really interesting time for sports it's a really interesting time for the uk it's a really interesting time for european identity and all that kind of comes together and i'm going to do my best to describe it so i i would love to hear from people what you think about this or your own experiences here so uh essentially after world war ii um there's the uh, Europe is obviously divided between, you know, the Eastern Bloc and uh, Western Europe or what, whatever you want to call it. There's uh, different ways that Europe is trying to kind of like re-coalesce, right? How do you how do you interact with your neighbors since all of 
you know, all of Europe is smaller than the U.S., right? So it's people who are very close to you who you've just been fighting viciously. And like, how do you function as a continent that's so intertwined? Yeah. So sports just are a part of that. Right. Plain and simple. That's part of why the Olympics have some of these like really amazing, beautiful, crazy, bad, like all kinds of different stories, just because the sports that include one country playing against another country is just going to intersect with all these different issues and feelings and thoughts. And like it can be a source of you know healing or it can be a source of like great conflict and things like that. So. The Euro Cup, right, which is a big tournament where different European teams from different countries play each other for the Euro Cup, um, was formed in 1955. So in 1955, they created this concept where uh, the best teams from all the countries would play against each other. Again, the, the system is very confusing to me. I'm sorry, I just don't know it, but that's my basic understanding. And so uh, at that time, because in European identity, English identity has always been an outlier, right? Like the English people, British people as a whole, but more specifically the English, right, perceive themselves as not european in the same way that other europeans are right Right. not always i mean obviously we're we live in post-brexit world so obviously that it's a feeling that persists so when the euro cup was formed uh obviously england was eligible to be part of that and they actually uh the the english sorry the english football league actually denied the English team's access to playing it. They said that English soccer is, should be played in England against English teams, and we're just going to keep it English, and we're not going to get mixed huh. up with Europe. Uh, we're not going to be a part of the Euro Cup. We're not going to do it. So the first Euro Cup, the English team that was eligible for it, was denied permission by the English Football League to play in the Euro Cup. And the following year, uh, the 1956 to 1957 season, whatever, I don't, I don't know what season is soccer season, but in the 1956 yeah. to 1957 season, there was uh, Manchester United, uh, headed or owned by Matt Busby, was the team that won the English title and would therefore be eligible to play against other European teams. And they were denied permission to do that. And they just defied it and said, like, sucks to suck, stop us. You're going to arrest us? Like, we're doing it. So this team, what I think about is, like, these are, they were very, very young. The team was, like, the average age was 21. Obviously, not everybody was 21, but it was, like, a very young, youthful team. Honestly, I think about in the face of World War II, where you had so many young men, so many sons, fathers, brothers who were killed. Mm. I think about just the um, 
I don't know, just the way you would feel about yeah. these like, you know, young guys who are really, really good and who like represent your nation and just people loved them. I called them the Busby Babes because they were really <laughs> uh, particularly young team yeah. and people just really, really, really loved them. And it was fun to have somebody competing against the other European teams, right? Like they're, yeah. you know, we're, we stopped shooting each other and now we're going to play soccer against each other and it's a good time. Yeah. Um, they they didn't win in that year, but they did great, and they were like a really, 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 really beloved um, uh, icon of not just Manchester, but of England as a whole. So, in the 1957 to 58 season, the following year, they wanted to do the same thing again they wanted to play against european teams and they wanted to play against english teams now the way that worked uh english games at that time were on saturdays and european games were on weekdays so theoretically they could just like bounce back and forth uh but this is a time where like flying around you know that like d- traveling by flight was uh pretty it was in its you know not infancy but it was a very new thing yeah people uh aren't just doing that like it's very normal now obviously like a whole team will get out of plane every single day but in order to bounce back and forth between you know someplace in europe and then going back to england to make sure that you can make it in time to play on saturday meant you really have to fly so they were committed to doing that but there's another element where the european rules uh said that they had to be in the city for at least 24 hours before the game and i assume that that's to encourage you to actually you know spend time in the city i don't i'm not sure why that is but maybe just to encourage if the purpose of this is to kind of get people to see other parts of Europe and like, you know, get to know each other. And maybe if we're all friends, we won't kill each other again or whatever. So they have to be there 24 hours early. They have to bounce around and they're professional athletes. So their body, (laughs) their sleep, their food, their like just being in the same time zone, all of that stuff is going to get messed with quite a bit by Mm -hmm. flying all around and you're losing time. Uh, for practicing you're playing so many games right you're playing so 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 many games and they were killing it like they were doing great um but they did have as the the season went on and we're in 1958 or the very beginning of 1958 they had a handful of experiences where they would like book a flight but the flight would be canceled it's winter time it's they live in the foggy country right so the flight would be canceled for whatever reason and they have to take a train and it would take way longer they'd have to take a ferry and it would take way longer and they would have to take these much slower means of transportation Mm. and they had been flying commercially but that Again, every minute is so precious. Every minute of sleep, every minute of of uh, like being not in transport, it is exhausting to be you know running around uh, like sleeping on a train or sleeping on a ferry or whatever. So they decided that what they would do is they would start to charter flights and have their own plane that leaves when they want to leave, and that way they can um, move around more easily and hopefully avoid some of those issues yeah so um on 
on February 4th, 1958, they flew to Belgrade at that time in Yugoslavia um, to play a game against Belgrade. And the Belgrade's uh, team name is the is Red Star Belgrade. And we are just we are just in it. You yeah. know what I mean? We are just yeah. in Yugoslavia. <laughs> it's 1958. And they played them and uh, actually tied. So three, three. Um, so they tied, but the tie was good enough to keep them in the running for the Euro Cup, right? So good enough, got the tie. Yeah, I assume that three three must be a banging game of soccer. Right. I guess like that's yeah. lots of it's goals. Six goals, and yeah, it's a lot of goals. Yeah, so uh, I'm sure it was awesome. Yeah, and uh, they needed to hurry back on February 6th. So on February 6th, that day is a Thursday. So they want to rush back to finish the game, go back uh, to Manchester where they have a game on Saturday. So they're really hoping that they can have Friday. The reason they chartered the plane in the first place is so they can have, first of all, get to Belgrade in a timely manner, but also hopefully get home on Thursday so they have a whole day before they play their game on Saturday. So they get back onto their plane that they've chartered. And the plane they've chartered is uh, BA, which is British European Airways, uh, Flight 609. They have, it's a Airspeed Ambassador 2. So, uh, you know, these are older planes that we don't talk about as often. It's called the Elizabethan. So it's a very, Mm. very British, uh, you know, Her Royal Majesty Elizabeth got a, Still there. She's still, still kicking. Kid. She's still there. Boy, I really hope that she doesn't die before this episode comes out. Oh my God. God so, bless her. God bless her. So I know we're, well, we'll leave it all on. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> we're going from Belgrade, Yugoslavia. We're trying to get to Manchester and we're going to have to have a refueling stop in Munich, West Germany, right? So they, they can't fly all the way from Belgrade to Manchester in one shot. Uh, we've got in the cockpit, we've got Captain James Tain. So he was a, like I'm assuming pretty much all pilots at this time, he was a World War II RAF pilot. Mm, yeah. He had a very, you know, great career in the RAF and he had, uh, made a good name for himself he'd gone to work for BEA um shortly after the war and was you know making his career you know here we are uh you know however many years later and we're he's rolling along as a commercial pilot the first officer is uh Kenneth Raymond also a World War II RAF pilot he uh was very decorated I always think it's kind of funny that these things are known and reported but he had fought nazis and he'd fought fascist italy uh in you know dog fights in right. planes where he'd shot down i think five nazi planes Whoa. and one fascist italian plane yeah and so he was a serious soldier yeah. pilot right he had done a lot and so these are very especially again we're, we're at a time where commercial aviation is pretty new and the people flying them are these you know royal air force men who had yeah. learned how to fly killing nazis and the occasional fascist italian what so a, right. well, what a great way to learn how to fly a plane i mean if you're gonna kill anybody it's got to be nazis yeah. right 
or I think I do think fascist Italy sometimes just get like let, let like go. left yeah. out of <laughs> yeah people like but let's talk about it One so two. yeah <laughs> so we've got 44 souls on board uh, the two pilots, there's also the radio operator, because it's an old plane, and a navigator, because it's an old plane, um, two flight attendants, and then 28 passengers. Uh, the passengers are obviously the team itself. Uh, they've got some of the press that's traveling with them. They've got the trainers. They've got Busby himself is is on the plane. He's obviously tagging along to see the games. So 44 people total, uh, six of them are some kind of crew and uh 38 of them are passengers okay uh we take off from belgrade and it's february so it's pretty darn cold right but they take off no problem from belgrade they fly and they make it to munich west germany and land and they land at around one o'clock so all they're doing here refueling gonna take off and go so when they uh land in when they land uh they had turned on the de-icing equipment now on the ground here in uh munich it's hovering right around 32 degrees, like 32, 33 degrees, which is zero-ish uh, guys for Celsius people. <laughs> so that, as maybe you know, if you live in a cold place that has snow, that's cold, but not crazy cold. Perfect. And it's also the temperature where there is like a little bit of snow falling, but yeah. it's kind of that wet snow and it's not going to, it's not likely to turn into ice on the wings because it's right, right on the line. Right. Right. Um, but they flip the, the de-icing equipment on anyway. Um, some planes as they're taking off are going through the de-icing process, but they're, they're just refueling and then they're going to go. So, uh, Captain James had flown to Belgrade, so Kenneth is flying back. Uh, at they, they refuel, everybody stays on the plane, easy peasy, they fuel up. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, Captain James likes to be on the right side. He just prefers the right seat of the aircraft, so in case anyone doesn't know, uh, the left seat, if you're facing forward in the aircraft, the left seat is where the captain sits. The right. right seat is where the first officer sits. But James was like, hey, Ken, I really actually like the first officer seat, so I'm just going to sit on the right side. And Kenneth is like, that's fine. I don't yeah. care. Right. And apparently at the time, it, not that unusual, pretty normal because it's early days of yeah. aviation. We don't have all these. It is technically against the rules, but it's kind of like eh. they're two seats. Right. Whatever. Right. So they fuel up. They at 219, they get permission to uh, go like to the runway and take off. Um, it's snowing a little bit more, but not too bad. So it's snowing and they, uh, as they're like doing their final checks, this is something that's, it, this doesn't work quite the same way anymore, but it's, there's not a huge amount of aviation traffic, right? And the uh, air traffic controller gives them a window to take off until 231 so it's 219 and they've gotten to 231 to take off right big wide big window. window 
big window. So uh, incidentally, the uh, Munich airport has a long runway for the time, a very long runway. Mm. I kind of can't help thinking like, oh, was it the Nazi runway for like the Nazi, like probably, I don't know. So I don't know. It's, it's such a, it's very hard for me to imagine what it would be like to be like stopping by to get fuel in Germany in the fifties, a few years. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird thing to think about. And again, the captain and the, the first officer were out there killing Nazis during right. World War II, right? Like they were fighting. I don't know. It's a very interesting thing yeah. to try to imagine. So they, but it's got a super long runway, which is luxurious, right? Runways just weren't that long. Um, so it's about uh, 6,000 feet. Wow. It's over a mile long. So wow. so they've got lots of time. They've got 11 or uh, 12 minutes rather to take off. They do their final checks and they start to roll down the runway for takeoff. Uh, as they're rolling, the left engine starts to make like a weird sound, and the pressure gauge is just like all over the place, like it's going up and down, up and down, up and down. So they abort the takeoff, they roll back around. Now, something about the Elizabethan, this aircraft uh, has, it's got um, top fixed wings, meaning like the wings are straight across the top like a t if that makes sense um and two engines one on each wing so this particular aircraft has an issue where it will uh the the fuel will will flow too rich into the engines on takeoff it's kind of a problem that they've dealt with before on this aircraft so that's what they think it is and if you imagine I don't know if, you know, again, depending on your experiences, this might make sense, this might not, but but as they as they throttle up, right, what we think of like just trying to increase the the power to the engines to make the plane go faster for takeoff, what you're literally doing is you're opening the throttle, right? So you're putting more fuel into the engine and then it has more power and so you go faster right so what can happen is if you if you throttle up fast and you open that little thing fast it will pour too much like the the mixture of fuel that can go into the engine can be too rich and the engine can surge and over accelerate and you can't have that so that's kind of what they think it is so because they've dealt with that problem before mm. so they roll back around they've got until 231 that's their right. window to take off so they come back around and uh get ready for another takeoff attempt and so what they do is they think okay we're just gonna we're going to slow down how fast we're opening the throttles. We're going to accelerate more gradually because we've got a super long runway. And our best guess is that that's the problem. So it's still a little bit more, but it's still, this is just a couple minutes later, right? They just rolled around and, and got back to the start of the runway. Right. So they rolled on the runway and for a full 40 seconds and that's a pretty darn long time to give yourself to accelerate. Yeah. But they're trying to accelerate more slowly. They're trying to open that throttle more slowly and they get the same thing. The, the engines start to surge because it's getting too rich, rich of a mixture because it's 
they're not opening it slowly enough or they're not, something else might be wrong. So the engine surges, they abort the takeoff, and they roll back around. Now, again, this is a time where traveling by plane is very new. And so the people, the passengers, the team, some of them are getting a little bit freaked out, which I can personally understand pretty easily two takeoff attempts, one of which lasted for 40 seconds. That's a long time to like rattle down the runway and not and then have it just slow back down and stop and turn around. So, you know, people are starting to get unnerved. Uh, They decide what they're going to do is they're going to have maintenance take a look at it, see if they can see something that's wrong. They roll all the way back to the gate and let all of the passengers off. So the all the the team and everybody with them gets off and goes to the airport lounge. Um, Some of them take pictures. They feel pretty confident because it's snowing a little bit more and a little bit more and two takeoff attempts. And now they're back in the airport. And so they're kind of thinking that this flight's going to be canceled. One of the players actually uh, sends a telegram to his landlady to say uh, the flights are canceled. We're going to fly tomorrow. And no one had said that. That was just what they thought was going to happen. Right. So I don't know what the relationship was with his landlady that he sent her a heads up. But (laughs) but he did. Right. And so they're all trying to relax figure out what they're going to do probably again thinking about how they have to fly tomorrow they're going to be whipped when they have to play the game on saturday i don't know so they they're all the players and press and everybody who's with them are hanging out in the airport lounge and the pilots are like uh okay so maintenance look at our engine what's going on and uh, the maintenance, Bill, his name is Bill. So Bill, the maintenance man at, um, at Munich, looks at the engine and says, okay, so you already tried opening the throttle more slowly. You already tried accelerating more slowly, and it still did it. And they're like, yeah. And he's like, then I think you got to just cancel it. We'll keep the plane overnight. We will retune the engine, yeah. and you can just fly tomorrow. And it's like a plane hospital, plane hospital. Exactly. Like just, just spend a night here. Yeah. And James is like, he knows the whole point of them chartering this flight right. is so they can get home. Right. And it's not that late. And he's thinking like, he says like, Hey, so the runway is so long, right? We can accelerate even more slowly yeah. and still take off. Right. So why don't we just give it one more shot? We'll, try to accelerate as slowly as as safely right as we can and if it doesn't work then fine but why not give it one more shot because maybe maybe we'll be fine if we just open the throttle even more slowly and you know kenneth is down and bill is like you know you're the boss whatever you say right like i if you take off great and if you don't then we're just gonna cancel the flight and we'll fix it tonight so it, that's only 15 minutes. That whole conversation, the whole looking at it, all of that, that doesn't last any length of time. Uh, they go back in and round up the players and say, like, hey, we're going to give it one more shot, hop on the plane. And so everybody kind of gets back on the plane. But again, people are people who are nervous flyers are now significantly yeah. more nervous. I don't know if I'd it's, get back on that plane. I'm going to be honest. Exactly. Yeah. I don't no. fault anybody, of course, for getting back on the plane. I just, knowing what I know no. now, I don't think I would. 
and I think the same for them, yeah, right? If course. they knew, but but the um, they, it's not inherently an unreasonable thought, right? The runway is so long; they have so much time to get back, get up to speed. Right. It's it's a logical thing to try if you really feel like it's important to take off, right? If you really, really value just getting going, then it's easy to see why they would want to try that. And so some of the players who are like the most nervous actually all sit in the back of the plane because they think maybe it'll be safer in the back of the plane. I don't, you know, whatever. I don't know why they thought that, but yeah whatever i think some people think that now right people just are you don't have control over a lot when you're a passenger right so you take control over what you can yeah at 256 they push back from the gate at 259 they're at the start of the runway they get cleared for takeoff and they uh, are doing their final checks and they're kind of strategizing. So like exactly what's the plan. And so Kenneth is the one flying in the captain seat. The captain, James, is in the right seat and he's going to be watching everything and calling out speeds and things. So what they say is uh, James is going to watch the gauge closely and he's going to warn or say something if the engines start to surge and uh, he's going to call out the speed in knots at 10 increments of 10. Uh, so they're kind of strategizing all of this. Uh, V1, for those who don't know, V1 means the speed, it's a decision speed. So that's the speed at which you have to either abort the takeoff attempt or you have to go for it, right? If something goes wrong, after v1 you still have to take off Mm. v2 is for anyone who doesn't know is this is takeoff speed it's the speed at which you can like lift the nose and and get off the ground v1 in this aircraft is 117 knots v2 is 119 knots so they're very very close so once you hit v1 you're so close to V2, right? right? So he's, they are strategizing, talking about everything, and the tower calls them back at 3.03 and says, hey, your takeoff, like, clearance is going to expire at 3.04. So, like... You gotta go. Go or don't, right? And they are just like, okay, yeah, we're gonna go for it. They start down the runway... And again, the idea is that they're going to accelerate slowly, open the throttle slowly, let fuel into the engine slowly and try to keep it from surging because it's only surging on takeoff. Right. So if they can get up in the air, they're going to be good. So they roll down the runway fast, but more slowly. And James is calling out, you know, like 10 knots, 20 knots, 30 knots, 40 knots at 85 knots. That left engine starts to surge just a little bit. And James says, like, it's surging a little bit. Kenneth pulls back on the throttles just a little bit and then pushes them forward again slowly. And it doesn't surge. It stops the surge. So, okay, we're doing this. Yeah. They are going, going, going. They hit 117 knots. And James says V1 and everything's going fine, right? So V2 is just two more knots. Yeah. It's right there. They hit 117, they decide to go for it because they've still got runway left and they're good. All of a sudden, 
it drops their speed drops to 112 knots oh. and then drops to 105 knots and they're they're can't they're running out of runway now and the plane is slowing down and kenneth yells out oh christ we're not going to make it and they start to skid they hit this slush and they skid and they skid through the fence at the end of the runway they skid across a street the left wing hits a house and cracks off the house catches on fire there's a mother and three kids in there and they all run out they they sprint out of the 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 house the tail breaks off the plane hits a tree on the left side and the right side that still has the wing hits a garage and in this garage of anything that could be in this garage there is a fully fueled truck full of tires and it explodes and so everything they finally come to a stop and now there's this huge fire of burning tires and and gasoline and a car and the house is on fire and they everybody slams to a stop and james sees the fire that's all around him uh, like in the cockpit it's around the plane it's not inside yet and he immediately like calls for an evacuation he looks over and Kenneth is trapped in his seat. The fuselage had like bent oh. and trapped him in his seat. And Kenneth looks at him and just screams like, like, don't wait for me. Don't, don't like oh. go. And people start to fall and run out of the, the plane. This is again, very early in aviation. It's not like there's a ton of knowledge about how to evacuate safely. Everybody is, is running out. Some people are relatively uninjured and some people are hideously injured and the people who are okay. Again, this is a plane full of young men mostly and they're dragging their friends out. They're trying to drag people out. James sees that the fire is, is going to break into the cockpit and runs back back onto the plane and grabs the fire extinguisher and runs into the cockpit and is like fire extinguishing trying to put you know any fire keep the fire from spreading in and he tells Kenneth like like I'm gonna come back for you I'm gonna come back for you and it takes time for people to start to show up but like people from this neighborhood are like running over to try and help and fire trucks you know eventually arrive and they try to put the fire out There were 44 people on board and 20 people died at the scene. Oh. One journalist died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Wow. Duncan, the kid who sent the telegram to his landlady, died 15 days later mm-hmm. in the hospital. And Kenneth, the first officer, actually survived for three weeks and finally died of serious head injury. In the end, in the end, 23 people died. Wow. And devastated the team. Yeah devastated like obviously the community in manchester but english sports fans in general it's horrible 
horrible, horrible, horrible. I can't, this is, there's no version of this that isn't a horrible, horrible tragedy, but I can't help thinking about how, like, again, these are people who, who had just, like a, a, a continent that had just had hundreds of thousands of their young men die or or yeah. come back maimed and traumatized and just I don't uh yeah. like the the horrible, horrible, horrible impact this had. Busby, the the owner of the team, was seriously injured and did survive. Some of the players were able to eventually play again, but obviously not all of them were. Yeah. It just devastated, yeah. devastated this, the entire, I, I want to say community. And I feel like there's so many communities that this intersects with yeah. that it devastated so many communities. The community in Munich that had a plane crash into it. Right. Right. I mean, this. Yeah. Horrible. There were explosions in their neighborhood that day. I mean. Explosions. Gosh. Right. And just, ah, uh, and the like mom and her kids right you know who it just uh i didn't realize that it it hadn't even taken off it never got off the ground oh god and they were just like yeah i like i don't know i don't i totally understand that thought of like yep this seems to be working okay let's do it you know so right so that's so Let's talk about it, right? What happened? What went wrong? So a West German official showed up a few hours after the crash to begin the investigation. And when he arrived, the right wing that was what was left of it had ice on it. And so he had arrived a few hours later after dark it cooled down more um but he saw ice on the wing and he was like the plane wasn't able to get off the ground was there ice on the wing right because if there were ice on the wings then the plane would have too much um resistance that's not the word friction on the wings right right? and it wouldn't be able to take off so that was his first hunch Hmm. and air crash investigation is is a new field right so it's and it's not a bad hunch so he went back and he went to the airport and the first question he said is like did the plane de-ice before they took off and they said no and he said did the other planes that took off that day de-ice and they said yeah and he's like okay well that doesn't look good so kenneth is dead kenneth is gone but and before he, I mean, he was, he had a serious brain injury and that's ultimately what he died of. So, but James was okay. Like James was physically okay. He was immediately like suspended by, um, BA, BEA. And he, uh, he felt like he knew that he, that it hadn't been ice on the wings. Right. He just felt so sure that it wasn't that the temperature again was like, 
not cold enough for falling snow to turn into ice on the wings. It wasn't cold enough for that. But the investigator said, okay, you had, you were just in Munich for refueling. So you had arrived from your plane being at altitude where Mm. it's freezing. And so if your wings were super cold, then when the even if the ambient temperature wasn't that low, if the, if the wings themselves were super cold, when the snowflakes fell on them, they might have instantly turned to ice. Oh. And he said, but I, you know, I had the de-icing equipment on when we landed. But then there's a question of like, did, was it still on for the entire time? They, again, there's more rudimentary uh, tools for, for monitoring everything that happened. So, right. Uh, they, witnesses that were interviewed said that there was snow buildup on the wing and there was a photo that one of the people, one of the journalists had taken while they were all hanging out in the lounge. You could see the plane right out the window. Like you can always see your plane usually when you're at the gate and he had taken a picture of the plane before, right before they got back on it and crashed. And in that photo, that photo had, he is a journalist, that photo had been printed in magazines or in, and papers all over the world. And in that picture, it looks like there's ice on the wing. <sighs> and so the German officials a year after this said it was caused by pilot error. You didn't de-ice. Right. You were in a hurry right. and you didn't de-ice. And you caused this and like filed charges against him and i can't i don't know the charges thing i don't know if he just didn't go back to germany i don't know but he didn't he didn't go to jail but he was positive that it wasn't ice he just felt and the reason why what he said was ice would not cause a sudden drop off right in the speed ice would make it impossible to get up to speed but it went from 117 v1 just below v2 and a safe speed to take off and then it dropped down to 105 knots so that doesn't make sense with ice and he they were just like nope it was your fault you did it it was ice and james uh i guess his family like his home base was like that he had grown up in was a poultry farm and he just went back and became a farmer again that's he just went back and did that but he was i mean the just dead set the attitude was that yeah right and and you think about if the world sees you as responsible for this horrific tragedy that i i can't imagine what that would do to you i can't imagine how that would affect your life and he started just writing letters like crazy to anybody saying i don't think this is it he got the pictures that the investigators had taken and in the pictures you can see that there's slush build up on the end of the runway now the thing about slush is that some planes have no problem with slush it just won't it doesn't matter and other planes had taken off on that runway and he said but we were taking up we were using way more runway most oh, right. of the planes or all of the planes that took off that day before us were were off the ground way before the end of the runway so the end of the runway wasn't cleared and we needed all of that 
runway to take off and we hit the slush and that had to be what did it so he's writing letters to anybody who will listen and uh he he's sending letters doing this doing that and in 1965 so seven years after the crash west germany agrees to reopen the case they have two days of hearings where they like re-interview witnesses they go over everything they go over like the evidence and at the end of the hearing they said it was definitely your fault. There was definitely ice on the wings. And what's worse, you it's you were in the wrong seat. Oh, and you fuck. being in the wrong seat probably added to like confusion in the cockpit. And so they actually were like more, more they were harder on him. And oh, God. so but so two years after that, two years after that, in nineteen sixty seven, uh the British PM was prime minister was at a Manchester United game and made like a side comment that uh, James Tain was the victim of injustice as like a side, just a throwaway comment. Yeah. I don't know what his goal was, but I don't It's like the, if the president suddenly brings up your case out of nowhere, right. like that's crazy right so for whatever reason he made this throwaway comment i think that james had sent him a letter one of the letters had gone to him and then after that all of a sudden it like this was a huge story right so all of a sudden that like pops the story back open they're like wait was he the victim of injustice yeah and they uh opened a british investigation into the crash and one of the things that they did that photo that was printed everywhere that looked like there was ice on the wing they got the negatives the british investigation took the negatives from that photo and in the negatives you can tell that it's not ice that you're seeing in that photo it's the reflection yeah it's like a chrome aircraft right so there's it's the reflection that in the photo that was printed looks like ice but in the negative you can tell that it's just it's just the sun hitting the chrome so they looked through everything they did some tests with the elizabethan with that aircraft they did some tests on slush and again a lot of aircraft that were built at that time handled slush just fine but they did some tests with that aircraft and found that it did almost exactly the same thing when it hit the slush wow. it almost exactly dropped down by the same number of knots so the british investigation cleared him in 1968 and that same year manchester united won the euro cup oh for the first time it became the first english team to do it oh and oh Oh, oh my word James, my heart oh i mean yeah because what what year did this happen again 50, 58 58 so a decade a full decade a full ten decade years, a full decade of being a chicken farmer right after you were in world war ii commercial pilot the world blames you for killing this team that everyone loves right a beloved soccer team a beloved soccer team and like a lot of young people and ruining right. a lot of families oh and like the the like three week thing like the you know you're injured and then oh you pass away like three weeks after that is 
Mm. Torture. Just utter mm. torture for families. Like mm. mm-hmm. the worst the worst possible thing. Oh. Like God. And then decade later. I mean it still doesn't like it doesn't feel great, but um Right, but just to... he probably slept for the first time in a very long time, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Just I mean, I can't imagine how it would feel you get the case reopened in Munich. Oh my god, and right. They it's two days long and they say it's even more, more your fault. Right. Ugh. And there's some speculation that it is the case that slush was like less understood. It is the case that um all of that, like it, you don't need to have a bad guy per se um but there is some speculation that so the munich authorities that were doing the investigation if it's ice on the wing it's the pilot's fault if it's slush on the runway it's the airport's fault Mm. and that it's maybe they're somewhat incentivized to not blame the airport i don't know if that's true it may be Maybe, you know, um, right. aviation is not some huge world, you know, at that, especially at that time. It's not like, I, I don't know. But, so was it, was ugh. it primarily the slush that was the problem the whole time or was there something else? The whole time. It was the slush oh the whole God. time. So that's why they kept happened, dropping. Right. That's why the speed dropped off. So there wasn't slush on the whole runway. There was slush at the end of the runway or like the last third of the runway. And other planes weren't taking up over a mile of runway to take off. But they took up so much runway because they needed to accelerate as as slowly as they could safely in order to keep the engines from surging. And the thing was, if there wasn't slush on the runway, they would have taken off. They were right. That opening the throttle more slowly Dude. kept the engine from surging. Right. Like they were actually, their their strategy was correct, but the runway wasn't completely plowed. God. Wow. Oh. Oh. And do we know why the engines were surging? I guess it was just a problem that the engines on this aircraft did okay they yeah yeah, it was just an issue that could happen they needed to be tuned i don't know enough about engines to to sure yeah describe that in more detail but it wasn't like uh uh, there wasn't like a a deeper issue wrong with the engines it just was one of those things as As far as it appears yeah yeah, as far as anyone could see it was just because that would be in a if this whole investigation had happened more recently I'm sure they would have, like, looked into the engines a lot, like, very, very seriously, because that was the presenting issue, right, right, beforehand. Um, But that's the thing that bothers me so much. They They were right. The pilots were right. Right. That did solve the issue. Gosh. But the runway betrayed them. Right. Ugh. No. I'm so glad that family got out. Oh my gosh, for real. What, did, I was. I was. Ugh. Was anybody else hurt on the ground besides the journalist? The journal. The journalist was a passenger. Oh. Oh. oh um, okay. I got you. Got you. He was a passenger. Yeah, one of the passengers traveling with them. So nobody on the ground was hurt. I know when I was reading this and I saw 
a mother and three children oh. were in the house. And I was like, oh my no. gosh, if this story, if the next line of this is that a mother and three children are died in a house fire. Right. I'm not going to, today's not the day for this story, right. but I'm so, I mean, again, it's horrible and it, it maybe it's, maybe it's human instinct. Maybe it's my instinct to like think about those, like the ways it could have been worse. worse. Right. And I don't yeah. want to distract no. from how horrible it was. Yeah. Well, your brother has a story about, like uh, the thing that happened in New Orleans. Do you know the story I'm thinking of? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I'll Tyler, your, yeah, tell me. Your brother, your brother Tyler, said that he was in, I think, New Orleans at a museum, and he was wearing his like oh, Manchester yes. United yes. jersey. Yeah, yeah, and like uh, like a nice old British guy came over and was like asked him like open the conversation with what happened on february 6 1958 and your brother was like the manchester united plane crash and then it was like okay so now we can talk yeah yeah exactly uh and he i mean tyler could talk more about it but just the experience of talking to somebody who remembered it right and and experienced just the uh there's there's i don't you know yeah right and you know that again i try to like minimize talking about the acute human suffering um yeah the there's some descriptions of some of the players who survived but there's one that stands out to me and so skip ahead of maybe a minute but he he could feel that there was blood on his face and he had hit his head and he felt, he can't see himself, he felt like his head was, like, cracked open. Like, that he he was, like, his his brain was not inside his head. Oh. That's what it felt like to him. He was yeah. in so much pain. And he was afraid to touch his head because he was afraid he was going to, like, feel his brain. Right. And so he was just, like, just, like, oh, well, I'm I'm dead. And he wasn't dead and so he saw that there was like a a hole or a crack in the fuselage and he just like pushed it open and like climbed out but i can't imagine what it would feel like to be afraid to like that kind of injury where you're afraid to even touch your own body body because you don't want to like sense that like you don't want to confirm i i just like if you've ever had like a compound fracture or something and you're just like your brain wants to reject that information right. like does not want that information it's so horrible right. and some of the players did continue to play or went back to playing i'm sure i don't know if they they could just start playing immediately right like on saturday yeah, you can't no play on saturday yeah. after a plane crash but but some of the players went on to play, and I think about some of them who didn't. It is so horrible when you are an athlete and you have some hideous injury. Yeah. And your whole life just your changes. Just immediately, right. in a second, in a split second because of some snow. Like, ugh. 
Well, and I mean, for the players, right? I don't know what the different players who survived or the different people on board who survived, I don't know what they all collectively or individually thought was the Mm. cause of it. Mm -hmm. But if you're already spooked because you're getting onto the plane again and then it crashes and then the official report says it was the pilot's fault. Oh my God, burning the world down. Like, yeah. Right. And you would, and you, and the pilot isn't a stranger to you, right? So this is a person who the cockpit doors are open at this time, right? Like you saw him and you, in the aftermath like immediately after the crash when he's running around and maybe you're you're going through this thing together and then if you believe because it was the official report that he was the cause or the surviving cause because both pilots were blamed but he was blamed more he's the captain and he was in the wrong seat um and that was why the the airline that was the official reason why they let they fired him was because of the sweet seat switching wow yeah because that was against the rules and i don't have any idea whether or not he would have wanted to keep flying i have no knowledge of that yeah um but it's still just being like kicked to the curb like that after going through something like that. Right. Totally. Well, and just having, I don't know how long Kenneth was conscious after those like first few minutes, but just the, they were both in world war two, not together, but both of them were, you know, like in world war two together. And Mm -hmm. I can't imagine looking at a person next to you and having them scream, like, leave me. Yeah. And then leaving. Right. Which it's not wrong, but I don't think that would feel good. And then running back in and telling him like, I'm, I'm going to come back for you. And he dies. And it wasn't, he was, he had a horrible head injury. He was not going to survive in all likelihood there's it's not right he was not going to survive and he was trapped he was yeah trapped in his seat so it's not that something could have been different but just on a human to human level to like look at a person next to you and have them tell you to leave them and then leave i just think that that could haunt you even if everyone around you would say it was the right thing yeah. even if that person would say it was the right thing i just don't oh the I amount think of, that could really haunt you yeah the amount of survivor's guilt that would come with that right i mean just switching right. the seats alone like how do you even right. come back from right that, you know right <laughs> because if he had been in that seat yeah it'd be him. then oh so it's a horrible horrible tragedy and obviously had a a huge impact on so many people's lives but also on the the sport the the community and yeah well and you essentially i mean Mm. they had to build their club back up like that's what i mean tyler and i have talked about this a few times and that's kind of what obviously like you know him being a fan that's kind of what he focuses on that part but um is just how difficult it was for fans and like for the team and the club itself and how hard they had to to build it back up i mean you know right when you lose so many good young players i mean it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and energy and talent to 
to create something on a professional level and that's just it's wild yeah it's amazing it's amazing that they won the championship oh my 10 God. years after yeah. the fact really i mean that's unbelievable because building a team right i mean anybody who likes any sport knows that it's not just that building a winning team is actually not a simple thing right at all right and it's it not is, you just show up and play no it's it's like strategy and witchcraft and luck right? right like it's just something where you have to it's hard to form something like that and if you have it like the magic of having a really good team and then they're devastated by this and then how hard it would be to reform it there's there's um a lot of memorials to a lot of different memorials to this and um, to this event and to this team. And what's stood out to me, let me find it. The um, Belgrade Red Star team, they, they actually wanted Manchester United to just be named the champion that year. That was what they wow. proposed, and it got shot down. And, like, I understand both sides of that. Yeah. I actually do understand both yeah. sides of that because because it's a big deal, right? Some people don't care about sports, and yeah. that's fine. You don't have to care about sports, but don't, like, argue with the idea that it's a big deal to people who it's a big deal to and to the athletes themselves, right? If you If you get to... If you're that far along in the season and it just kind of gets kind of pseudo canceled by something, right? right. Where some team is is kind of um, symbolically named the champions. I think that there's something very beautiful about that idea. And I understand that I understand not doing that. Yeah. You know what I mean? But yeah, exactly. I just think it's that the Belgrade Red Stars have a, there's like a, memorial in belgrade to them obviously in munich obviously in manchester but there's some in in different places around the world mm. um yeah wow yeah but that is that is the story of um british european airways 609 wow the manchester united crash thanks for <sighs> covering that one it's a tough one we've yeah. done so many tough ones lately I know. There's a, I mean, I know. that's the reality, right? It's one way or I the know. other, kind of. Uh, I, I would really particularly, you know, guys, that we always love to hear from you, but I would particularly like it because I know that this one is, this this event has, isn't only an, an aviation story, right? right? It is a sports story and it is a history story. I, I can't, like, disconnect from how yeah how re-traumatizing mm. it would be in like post-war yeah truly england to have these like young men yeah well horrible. and i think i read somewhere when i was because i looked up a fact for this specific crash oh yeah um and i think one of one of the things that came up was the Germans bombed their stadium. So they couldn't even play there from like 41 to 
49 maybe something along those lines and like but they had to play it in in a different stadium so like this is this is a very surreal and like very personal on a very personal level that i mean i can't imagine i don't i don't know if anybody really could if you weren't in their shoes like at that stage you know i mean it was such an impact on history and right it just must have been like god you know one thing after the other after the other like we have no concept we don't have a a comparable concept i should say of like what it would be like to have your your local places destroyed by war right um and that besides i mean pearl harbor and then 9-11 like that's that's it right and i mean not not that's it but those are small very small very small exceptions incredibly small exceptions and um the yeah i don't know and right and having them like die in germany but it's also the like the cold war nature of it's in west germany and like there are buds now because they're not east germany so they're you know right, I, you right. know what i mean like the weirdness of i don't know i don't know yeah, just, just all of the, it the whole context of it is is so important right but i I cannot to me i i can't personally get past the fact that the pilots were right and i, I understand know. why james like fought so hard so long because okay. there's a mile there's so it is such a massive difference between you were right and the runway betrayed you and it's your fault you caused it Huge right like that's difference. those couldn't be further apart but did you those, um did you have i do additional facts i do have an ah, additional many fact. facts um so in 2011 manchester united carried out a study actually a worldwide mm. survey uh like through a market research company to figure out how many Manchester United fans there are in the world. And oh, interesting. one tenth of the entire world's population are Manchester United fans. Really? Yeah. Um, over, and I mean, granted, That's... this was in t- 2011, so there were 650 million fans all over the world. That's unbelievable. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I mean, one-tenth of the world's population. That is insane. So it's like the fourth biggest religion would be Manchester United or whatever. That is unbelievable. Yeah. It's crazy. Holy cow. I know. I didn't didn't realize how... I mean, I had never heard of them before, you know, my brother. So... (laughs) Right. This was not in my sphere, of course, but... It's, I mean, right. yeah, they are a beloved wow. team and they, I mean, they have like the, the, I think they have the best winning record of, out of any soccer team. Um, wow. So they're, you know, like the Yankees of soccer, I guess. <laughs> Everyone's going to yeah. kill me for that comparison. <laughs> I mean, die mad. The Yankees are the Yankees of baseball. So that deal with it. But I don't know yeah, how many millions that's... of Yankee fans there are, but I mean, Probably not a tenth of the I've world. Seen, I I don't I don't have any idea, but I know I've seen Yankees like 
symbol like the ny symbol on like in every country i've ever been yeah so so many things yeah it is at least a very popular icon so yeah symbol but But he's apparently according to manchester united one tenth of the population should have gone like full dictator with it and said 99 (laughs) percent of the world is a manchester united fan yeah that's that is crazy yeah. though. That is an unbelievable. It's a lot of people. unbelievable statistic. Yeah. Well, and I kind yeah. of wonder like if this plane crash had a little bit to do with that, just like the the major news of it, you know, and just like people following sure. and watching their yeah. regrowth and like I have I have no idea. I mean, I didn't look up the study at all, but I would imagine. Well, yeah. That I mean, to have to them, I can't imagine what it would have been like when they won. You know what oh I mean? I can't, God. I can't. Yeah. Like I think about you and I have talked about the inconceivable joy <laughs> that Buffalo would experience. Josh Allen, if baby. Buffalo, if Josh Let's Allen personally won the Super Bowl, yeah. right? Like that. And that's just the, the psychological suffering right. that comes from <laughs> like the Bills history over the last like 30 years or whatever right and how that would be so wonderful and so i can't imagine this kind of like this is so much more like violent and hideous than than other kinds of stories like that or i mean i don't talk about it that often because for for obvious reasons but (laughs) i'm very sure that boston was the place to be oh my god the year they won can you imagine yeah the world series for the first time you know i mean that's Right. Yeah, There's, it's know. just I, like yeah. a it's a neutralizing for the fans. It's like a neutralizing experience, you know. I think that's the like healing. Yeah, that's like the thing about back. sports yeah. is like it can be a neutralizing environment. Like yeah, very vulgar at times and like super fucking yeah. crazy, but in terms yeah. of just like pure joy and celebration, it's something that everybody can be happy. It, oh, you yeah. know, in your city or in your, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, but yeah. Um, well, I was, I've told you before, right? Like I was, I've probably said it on the show before too, but like I was in the, in Europe during the Euro Cup in 2012, mm. 11, 12. And uh, it was such an event. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I understand soccer in the most basic way that I understand mm-hmm. that it's like hockey on foot, yeah. right? <laughs> and, but that's, that's, that's my, the extent of my knowledge, yeah. right? And, the um but it was so fun to go just because like in the town square there's going to be a big tv and everybody's watching it and then if i was in i happened to be in spain when spain won one of the rounds and like moved on and then i was in malta when italy won whatever round and i guess italy is like Malta's surrogate team or whatever I know Malta has their own team but yeah but all of that to say those were like electric yeah. nights yeah. of just like pure insane fiery joy yeah. like in in Spain it was just like children setting off fireworks <laughs> right. and just crazed like glee and in Malta people 
I really thought people were going to knock this bus over, okay. but instead just yeah. climbed on the bus and the bus driver drove <laughs> honking his horn and cheering Perfect. while people were on top of it. Yeah. It was just like yeah. wild happiness. And so I can't imagine what it would be like to have that kind of electric, wild happiness and like have the whole world be happy for you. Exactly. That's the thing. Yeah. Like when we've talked about it, if the Bills won the Super Bowl, the whole world would be yeah. happy for them. Yep. Everybody yeah. would be happy. I mean, Every the world. Soul everybody who knows and cares right yeah. but like having like everybody be so happy for you mm-hmm. and like partake in that joy with you is such like a wonderful irreplaceable experience yeah. right totally and, yeah totally yeah yeah oh. i'm sure i imagine that you're right that the that this had that this like horrible event has to do with that right yeah. because re being like reborn after something like this is such a powerful experience right and then just being like so good you know well right that's let's not fool around right that's part of right that's of course part that's probably the main part yeah. is if they're it's either like the martyrdom complex that you get from liking a team that's terrible yeah. or it's it's they're actually good the fun <laughs> yeah. of liking a team that's good yeah right totally right yeah so uh, yeah if anybody definitely obviously please like message us guys if we got stuff wrong um very possible right always (laughs) and uh but if you have something that's more like a yeah a personal story or if you happen to live close to one of the memorials there are a lot of memorials around so if you happen to live near one of those yeah send us some pics if you live in belgrade i just want to see a picture i really (laughs) would love to go to belgrade i just think I just think it's meant to be a very beautiful city and I would just like to see pictures of it. Yeah. So yeah. But well, that's Thanks for doing that. That's that. Yeah. Thank you, Mariah. And thank you, um, Tyler, for helping yeah. um with some of this stuff. And yeah. I love you, Mariah. I love you too, Casey. We love all of you. We love we do love all of you. <laughs> and um yeah, we'll see you next Hey guys, thank you so, so much for listening to this week's episode of The Pod Crashed. We so hope you enjoyed it. If you happen to be a new listener uh, coming over from the collaboration with Mini Air Crash Investigations, uh, thank you. Welcome. And uh, thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you want to get in touch with us for any reason, you can email us at thepodcrashed at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, We love you guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.